Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the NIU Social Justice Summer Camp for Educators 4.0, the podcast version. I'm your host today, Mike Mandarino, and one of the co-directors of the uh, Social Justice Summer Camp. Today, I'm really excited to be joined by Dr. Sosan Jaber. Um, she is a colleague of mine at uh, Leiden High School, um, and she is currently a high school English teacher as well as one of our district equity and justice team leaders at East Leiden High School in Franklin Park. Dr. Jaber is also the founder of Education Unfiltered Consulting and one of the founders of the Arab American Education Network. Dr. Jaber is a board director of Our Voice Alliance, OVA, charged with amplifying the voices of teachers of color to create more equity for students of color. She recently completed her PhD with a focus on inclusion and belonging of students from marginalized communities. Additionally, Dr. Jaber is a member of ISTE's Leadership Network team and a National Board Certification candidate. She's an educational leader of 20 plus years with experience in a variety of settings in the United States and abroad. She offers the experience of being a member of a minoritized group as the daughter of refugees. Dr. Jaber has been featured in several conferences and podcasts. She's a lifelong learner in an ever-changing world. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Jaber, and, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So to, to start us off, um, just tell us a little bit about yourself and your work. You talked about um, in your bio, having a, a number of experiences in a variety of settings, both here and, and abroad. So talk to us a little bit about who you are and, and where your work derives from. So I have to say that I've, I'm really privileged because I've had the opportunity to kind of work in a bunch of different settings here and abroad. I've worked uh, in private settings and in public settings. I've worked from K to 12 as a teacher in a classroom and as a uh, district leader. I've worked as a, I've had the ability to work on a team of 14 people from different countries to write standards for an entire country, which was probably the most awesome experience I've had to date. Uh, because it gave me a window into education in a bunch of different uh, countries and in a bunch of different schools with professionals from those areas. And so I think that um, I'd like to consider myself a global educator and my perspective a unique one because I think my, my educational experiences in those fields have given me kind of the diversity of lenses that, that give me, you know, those, those different opportunities to see education from a bunch of different levels and through a bunch of contexts and, and things like that. So I like to think that I, I have a unique perspective on certain things having to do with education because of my experiences and my background. I come from a minority background. I don't think that you can um, like ever talk about equity in education without really dealing with or looking at or interrogating your own identity. And so I feel like that drives a lot of the work that I do and who I am um, in any position that I've taken. To date, uh, I come from a minority background as a brown, Muslim, head-covering Arab woman. Um, and I think that uh, falls into category with Sarah Ahmed's kind of hyphenated identity. Uh, and it's a place I like to start with all my students every year. Um, all of my intersections are problematic especially in today's uh, climate and um, in, in the West, uh, whether it's whether we're looking at my Arabic identity or my Muslim identity or my head covering as a woman, um, all of those present different challenges. And so I think that that also being a person who's experienced a lot of a variety of different things as a student and as an educator and now as a parent, um, that drives much of the work that I do. And I feel like I share those experiences and I've lived on the other side of it. And so it makes the work that I do more real for me. And 
And I think that's one, one of the reasons that I am so passionate about it, because when I see students kind of going through the struggles that I went through as a student in much more aggressive ways, it makes me more passionate about raising awareness and really doing what we can to kind of change systems because it's been too long and we're still having the same conversations. So how did you, how did you move from really taking, you know, your, your experiences and then saying, I, I want to research these topics. I want to, I want to really dig deeper into this and think about how this um, impacts education more broadly. How did you end up moving on that path from your academic experiences as well as your, your teaching experiences and administrative experiences? How did, how did you really specifically, when did you make that decision or how did you come to that decision? It definitely didn't come uh, early on because I think as a child, I always wanted to study English and teach English at a college level. That was my end goal. But I think um, once I started my master's and I started working in districts that were becoming more diverse, like most of the districts in our country and, and, and um, kind of resistant to the diversity and the demographic change, I started to see things as a teacher in a classroom that didn't look right and didn't seem right. And I, and I related my own experiences to those student experiences, but I didn't have the words to name it. And I didn't have the knowledge um, to actually like identify what those things were. I just knew that it didn't feel right when I was a student and it definitely wasn't right as a teacher. And so that really stemmed um, kind of my interest in what can I do to better advocate for my students? And how can I become a, um, a person that can really um, drive change at a district level and at a school level in order for me to push things forward and really raise awareness as to how I felt as a student, how, how these students are feeling. And even as an educator, I have had situations where I've been put into a box as a, as a Muslim educator in districts, again, that where I was the only minority teacher in the district. And I think I the way I felt in those situations as, as an adult who was somebody who knew, like I knew who I was, I, I my identity was kind of resolute. I knew, I knew my beliefs were, I wasn't trying to fit into a context, but I was still so hurt by and, and couldn't like articulate and, and, and have conversations by certain situations that I was put in by other educators. And then my immediate thought was, if this is how I feel, then how do students who look like me in the same district and are dealing with teachers like this with kind of, I want, I, I, they're called microaggressions, like re, with research and, and kind of in education. And, and when, we're, when we're talking about social justice, but they're really not microaggressions because they're happening every single day. So I think, I feel like the word microaggressions kind of minimizes the impact of those aggressions. Um, and especially because they're consistent, but these are students who are dealing with microaggressions from teachers who don't understand them and who are looking at them through a stereotypical lens. And they're at, a, at an age where they are still kind of figuring out their identity. And so the, the, the damages that are done when you're in that context every single day and spending more time with some of those teachers and you are at home and with students as well who have similar views, I think that really like stemmed my interest um, and when I dug a little bit deeper, I think um, things like the Arabs are not recognized on the census. My, my research focused on Arab students because it was a gap in the research. And so recognizing that Arabs aren't recognized on the census. And so I sat in meeting after meeting, um, looking at data and analyzing different subgroups, especially after ESSA um, came into play. In, and it was all about like student growth and the subgroup and focusing on subgroups and never in any of the conversations were Arab students ever part of that conversation? Never were, was there an intentional kind of focus on looking at Arab students because they're not an official subgroup or questioning how can we really immerse ourselves in the communities to really serve these students and understand them better? 
And I worked in a district that had a 611% growth of Arab students in a six-year period. And these conversations weren't happening in that context. And so the, these students were invisible um, and the conversation was never centered around what they needed. Um, and, and so the, the, when we were talking about like the social emotional needs or the academic gains, or they were masked with uh, kind of under like a white label because that's where they fit on the census, but they were very visible when it came to like the bullying and the marginalization in the classroom. And so that irony and kind of that juxtaposition of the, bo both of those things together were demoralizing the students and, and breaking them down underneath the surface. But a lot of people weren't seeing it because they weren't looking for it. And so I think a lot of that then, you know, really pushed me to, to say that I, as an educator and somebody who's in these contexts and somebody who's been on the other side of it, I have a responsibility to, to draw more attention to it. And hopefully my research will help these kids be seen and kind of um, draw more attention to the problem and name it in order for people to address it in different districts. It really had me thinking about in many ways, you know, my, for example, my own blind spots, um, when, when we think about different student groups. And one of the things you just touched on was this notion of invisibility, while at the same time, this duality of hyper-visibility, potentially, right? Or invisibility versus erasure, and then the hyper-visibility. Um, and I know your research is really focused on inclusivity as well. So I guess one, you know, it, it, am I capturing that in a way, this sort of duality of invisibility, but also hyper-visibility at the same time when you talk about bullying and aggression, but then also the invisibility in terms of performance or um, things like the census itself. And then what does that mean in terms of inclusivity? Like, so how would we move toward a more inclusive space, um, especially when, when working with students and their perceptions uh, around how they're included in, in ac both academic and social spaces within schools. I think you've captured it perfectly. And I think um, I've served on district leadership teams and school leadership teams. And part of my primary focus on those teams was to, to bring attention to not just Arab and, Arab and Muslim students, but to really talk about kind of just inclusivity in general of our students and, and catering to our, our students that come from major marginalized backgrounds, especially because many of our schools have a demographic divide where we have teachers that are primarily white, female, and then we have students that are from all different places. And in, in teacher training, at least for myself, I know that there wasn't an intentional like focus on, you know, as a teacher, how can I really understand kind of the backgrounds and the experiences and celebrate the cultural and, and linguistic uh, pluralism of my students beyond being culturally responsive, I think, and beyond tolerance and, and like just surface level understanding. And so I think to the eye, um, and that's one of the things that I kind of focused on in my research, like what does inclusivity look like? What indicators, when looking at students, what can we be looking for if we wanna really define inclusivity? And so one of the research uh, studies that I focused on was Amand et al. 2017, and he highlights signs of positive relationships with other students, signs of relationships, positive relationships with staff members, signs of willingness to get involved, and signs of harmonization and adaptation. And so I took that, and the, one of the first things I did was I went and I observed the students in informal settings and informal settings, but primarily in informal settings where they had less structure and they were kind of making choices on their own. So in the lunchroom, in assemblies, in the hallways, I kind of followed them around for a few months and just took notes, you know. And I think that on the surface, when you're looking at these kids, and that was a lot of the conversation that I had in district leadership uh, levels and, and school leadership levels, is that the kids are fine. 
they, they are fitting in, they have friends, they're doing well academically, um, they're, they're participating in extracurricular activities. So from an observational level, all of those things checked off. Now, where we kind of had a dissonance, they, they, we, we had th through the qualitative uh, process, and that's why I felt like a qualitative research was very necessary, because it, beyond the observational, what were the kids really feeling and how did they perceive you know, their, their, their uh, kind of inclusivity and, and, and how, how well they fit into the school system. And so I dug a little bit deeper and I found another research by Franz and Salman, and he talked about safety, order, care, and empowerment. And so from those four uh, kind of indicators of a healthy school culture and inclusivity, I started interviewing students and talking to them about the things that I observed and just about, you know, I, I created a kind of a, a focus session and, and not a focus session. I interviewed the students individually and created focus sessions for their parents, but focused on questions that would help me uh, determine how safe did they really feel? How much order did they feel was in the system to allow them to be themselves? How much did they perceive people in the building to really care for them? And how emp empowered were they, A, to bring their, uh, their cultural and linguistic diversity and celebrate their pluralism in the classroom and in school, but B, also to take risks and just be adolescent students in a classroom that have the same opportunities as everybody else. And what I found was I had, and I focused on Palestinian Arab students because it was a case study. So I wanted to get as um, kind of as, as detailed data about one group of students as possible. Um, and because the culture of the Arab students from different countries are so different. So I wanted to kind of keep the sample as, as, as similar as possible. I found three types of students. Either you had the students that assimilated um, because they wanted to fit in. And that meant that they had to deny every aspect of their identity. And, and that looked like even renouncing their name. So Muhammad became Mo or, and a lot of them, even when I, the first question, when I asked them to, to tell me their name, pronounced their names um, incorrectly because they said, that's how everybody else pronounces it. And I don't want to pronounce my name the ethnic way because I don't want to draw any attention to myself. So even things like their name, um, I had girls who were bringing extra changes of clothes to school so that they can change in the bathroom before they came into the building because um, girls in the Arab and Muslim culture are supposed to dress modestly and they're not allowed to wear shorts and they have to wear things that are to the knee. And so they would go, go to school dressed a certain type of way and then change in school. And parents and students that of these students who wanted to assimilate both talked about like how much dissonance was in the homes because these kids needed like a clean break from their home identities because it wasn't accepted in school. So digging deeper into the surface, then you see that kind of that willingness to get involved, the relationships with other students were really surface level things as long as these kids were kind of keeping their identities that made them different out of the school culture and they just presented and shared what was similar. Um, the other type of student was kids that immersed themselves in extracurricular activity. And these were mostly my boys who were playing, who were on the wrestling team and the basketball team and felt like they can connect with kids with their um, kind of hobbies and their, their interests through wrestling and through, um, through the sport that they played, but didn't pr bring in anything that was cultural or different into those conversations. So as long as they were sharing only what was similar, as long as they were, um, then, then they were okay. Um, and then the, you had those kids that kind of retreated and just kept themselves, the parallel of uh, Banks 
failed citizenship. They know that the system will never accept them. Um, they're really proud of their identity, their, their, their religion and their culture and feel that they're gonna be othered as a result of that. And so they didn't really care to kind of fit in at all. And so they stood out, they felt like they stood out like a sore thumb and they did with the perception of other students as well. And oftentimes these were my girls, especially the ones that wore the head cover. Um, and they were the butt of some of the worst uh, bullying in the school in comparison to some of my other groups. So I think it's really important to look like to look at beyond the surface of what we see, because when having conversations with other teachers in the building and administrators, what they saw was kids that seemed to be doing fine and they had friends and they were fine, but they couldn't see how much those kids were sacrificing and leaving at the school door in order for them to, to fit in and, and be fine in those terms. And I say that with like double air quotes because they were not fine, not at all. So it's very clear how you've been able to, you know, you sort of in your study, be able to, to use some of these um, categories, uh, these indicators, um, and then the way your findings sort of presented themselves so what are some of the ways that the, the indicators that you drew on and the findings that you had, how can that help schools really inform how, and I would say in particular, how um, Arab and Muslim students might be feeling in their school, what their perceptions of their school experiences are um, in relationship to what people think are happening in schools? Okay, so I think that, um, I guess Arab and, and Muslim students particularly are, I wanna say featured, I can't think of a better word on current media. Uh, anytime you see Arabs or Muslims are either being presented as blowing something up or in a violent way or people who are so different that they'll never be able to assimilate um, with the American culture. And they're always presented as a group of people who are at odds with the American culture. So there's like no harmony. There can never be harmony between an Arab and Muslim culture and the American culture when it's very, very different. Um, it's quite the contrary. I think there's so much harmony um, in, in both the Arab culture and, and, and the Muslim religion with the American values. And I think that's what brings a lot of people here. But that perception is kind of what people from the culture and the religion are constantly fighting. And so I think the most important thing is that we really need to look beyond the surface and have students work to self-identify and love their identity. Um, and, and that means really doing the work to have critical conversations that allow students to see the value in having kind of the layers and intersections of the, their identity and celebrating the things that they can bring into the classroom as assets. And I think once we kind of approach all of our students, but you know, we're talking particularly about Arab and American students, Arab and Muslim American students come into the classroom with that mindset, then the students are going to feel like that they, they're going to also see the value in those, um, in those identities. And they're not going to feel like they have to choose between one and the other. And I think that's where we're at right now with a lot of kids is that they feel like I have to either be American or I have to either, or be Arab. I have to either be American or I have to be Muslim. I can't be both of those things in the same space and be accepted. And so I'm constantly having to choose. And if I choose to be American, then I'm assimilating and I'm not identifying with anything that, that, is Arab or Muslim. And if I'm choosing to be Arab or Muslim, then I'm abandoning all of the American kind of ideals and identity because that's not who I am. And so I think seeing the fluidity between both of those identities or all three of those identities and, and showing kind of the, the acceptance of those identities is the first place to start. I think that schools don't have to wait for the census to officially identify your Arab students. I think it's on schools to really find informal ways of identifying those students and doing the work to meet their needs. 
um, and, and looking at them and talking about them in those conversations where we're talking about all the other subgroups in the same way. I'm not a huge proponent of um, those standardized test data conversations, but that's a different that's a different podcast, I think. <laughs> but I think looking at those students and asking the question, like, what do these students bring to your classroom that you and your other students can learn from? I think that's that's where we need to start. And then once we can get there, then it's like, how can I bring and build a bridge between that and the classroom in an acceptable way? And how can I bring kind of the community in into the classroom as well in order for us to make sure that when we are trying to do things for these students, we're not bringing in the stereotypical lens and hurting students and harming them as opposed to helping them with good intention. And I think that that happens sometimes without realizing is that we want to kind of advocate to students. We want to be culturally responsive, but what we end up doing is we end up recreating the stereotypes that hurt those kids to begin with. And so I think really doing the work to find resources that are um, the best resources that really are representative of the students, giving the students, amplifying student voices, showing them that like, you know, who they are is somebody that is acceptable in the context of the school and in the context of a classroom so that they feel more comfortable sharing and bringing their whole self to the room. I, I think those are the places that we need to start and, I, and allowing them to proudly say, I am an Arab um, it, without having them, you know, circle a bubble that where their identity doesn't exist and having to figure out where do I fit in, in, in these bubbles and I fit nowhere. So I'm, I'm forced to kind of put myself in a box, but I can't identify as what this box says I should be identifying as. You know, when you, when you talk about that particular, like of, of the, the circling the bubble, even in the research, right? There's, there's huge gaps in research in particular about Muslim students, Muslim teachers, Arab students, Arab teachers. Can you talk a little bit more about like some of those those real gaps that exist in the research and maybe places where those gaps don't necessarily exist, but they're not being uh, used or cited in ways that we really might need to, to think about um, re-examining? So in like in all of my kind of PhD work leading to my dissertation, I try to find, I, I focus on equity and, and justice like throughout my PhD, throughout the entire process of it. So every time I did some research, I was looking for like information, obviously like naturally you wanna learn more about what's out there that relates to you personally and then looking at other people as well. And there was so little out there. Most of the research on social justice and equity and even in conferences today, I think that there's just a gap that kind of is, it's a domino effect, right? Because they're not recognizing the census. We're not talking about them in groups. It's not a priority anymore because there's nothing that we're going to gain beyond like, like when we're talking about the requirements of like meeting st federal standards or state standards or requirements like ESSA, like we have to meet this kind of quota and we have to have our subgroups performing uh, better to a certain percentage on these standardized tests. Since we're not focusing on this specific subgroup, then, you know, that invisibility comes in to the research comes into conferences where teachers are kind of talking about students and, and addressing students and talking about like specific and unique cases of students that come from certain backgrounds. So it's kind of like a, um, a domino effect of invisibility across education from in every aspect. And in the research, much of the research on minority groups focused on black students, Latinx students, Native American students, Asian students, and Arab students, again, were invisible. Um, and we're masked under that white subgroup in the research. Um, same thing with conferences that are with a focus on equity. Like how equitable are we when we're talking about equity and we're completely like excluding a group that's, that's directly being targeted today more than ever. And that is 
extremely marginalized in our schools, right? So there's this inequity, if you will, when it comes to where, where, where the research lies um, around Arab and American, uh, Arab American, Muslim American students, um, and where we are in the classrooms and talking about them in schools and what, and what we're doing to kind of even professionally develop teachers in equity conferences and in other uh, areas of like even just the conversation with leaders who are doing equity work, we're constantly forgetting to actually really see those kids and, and intentionally talk about them. So, so given that, you know, especially those gaps um, just in the research, then it doesn't make it into, you know, practice journals. It doesn't make it into pre-service teacher education courses or even master's level education courses. So I think really specifically for a lot of our listeners, like what are some specific things you would tell educators who are serving Arab and Muslim students? Like what should they know to better serve their students? On a basic level, and I think that obviously these are like really like basic things that we can kind of touch on and there's so much more. It really depends on the kid too and where they come from and what their background is and how many generations of family have been in America for a long time. Like there's so many indicators that we would have to kind of delve deeper into that community. But to start, I think that one of the main misconceptions about Muslims and Arabs is that the two of those things go hand in hand and that they can't be separated. So I think knowing that not all Muslim kids are Arab and not all Arab kids are Muslim is a first start. That Islam is a religion and Muslims come from all different places, including like we have tons of American Muslims that are um, here from America who were born and raised for generations in America. Um, and that there are more than 20 Arab countries with Arabic as a main language, and that's who Arabs are. And those people from those countries embrace a multitude of religions. And in some of those countries, Islam isn't even the main religion, it's Christianity. And so kind of separating the two things and understanding that a Muslim American and an Arab American are two different things, they could intersect, but don't necessarily have to intersect. That's the first most important thing, I think. Number two, I think that um, oftentimes, and this one was one that haunted me throughout my education and even as a, as a teacher and, and like even now, I think I'm, I'm constantly talking about the fact that Islam doesn't promote male dominance, that historically the Arab culture, like many other cultures, including the American culture has, but Islam has glorified women and Islamic history presents stories and examples of women leading men in war and taking leadership role, roles. And women in those countries have worked and continue to work to change those things, just like they are across, like in many different parts of the world. And, you know, are we there yet? I would say probably not, but we're working on it, right? But it's, it's not as extreme as the media paints it. And in my large social circles, whether it's here or my work in different states or abroad, I have yet to meet somebody who resembles like this male dominated victim, the female with absolutely no personality and no rights. In, in that that extreme stereotype that exists in the media uh, and in, in a lot of the texts that our kids are being given in classrooms to read that are supposed to be representative of Muslim American women. Number three, I would say many Arabs in the West um, come from countries that have been ravaged by war and that has a lot of implications. Um, but the two main implications that I wanna focus on is that they are coming from a trauma-related background. And so when we're talking about how to address kids from a trauma-related background, although this is not the experience of those kids directly, I know growing up uh, from a, in a family of Palestinian refugees, we grew up watching the news and living the everything that was happening in Palestine with my parents because they were dispelled from their homes. 
right? And so they were so connected, again, that idea of failed citizenship to their home countries that they made sure that we were just as aware, we were, we loved our, our home country as much as we loved being Americans, that we were um, completely on, on, on knowledgeable about everything that was happening, every war, how many people died, we watched the news, we saw the, the blood, we saw, we lived that through a television screen, but we lived it in the same way. And we watched our parents kind of go through the emotions and the trauma of that in the same household. And I think that that was very common with a lot of the parents that come from those backgrounds. Today, more than ever, as there's more unrest in that region of the world, we're getting a lot of kids that are coming as refugees themselves. I know districts that have a 30% Yemeni refugee population or a Syrian refugee population. And those are growing numbers as the problems um, continue and more and more people are displaced from their countries. And so recognizing that a lot of these kids are coming from trauma backgrounds when we're addressing social and emotional health is a huge part of it. And that even if it's not their direct experience, a lot of these kids are living it through their parents. So um, I think that's one main thing that we have to understand. And the other thing is that parents are that are coming from these backgrounds that are dispelled from their homes are more likely to hold on to their culture and heritage because they were forced out of their homes and fear the loss of their culture and heritage. So when they are put in situations where their kids have to kind of assimilate and choose between being American or being whatever background they come from, whatever Arabic background they come on, they shut down and they disconnect. And it becomes kind of a thus and us and them mentality. And with a lot of the parents I interviewed for my dissertation, I found that there was a wall built from the parents' side as well because there was a lack of acceptance of the culture in the school. So that just kind of created more of a barrier for students to feel included because the parents also felt like that their children were being forced to decide between two identities as opposed to them embracing both. And so I think it's imperative that we view all of our culturally and linguistically diverse students with a culturally sustaining mindset so they don't have to choose between one or the other, but they can find ways to embrace both intersections of their identity and love each aspect of who they are. Another thing I think is that Arab parents are not disengaged. Um, I think that's often the perception. I, I did my, um, my educational leadership internship in a school that had 70% Yemeni population and that changed in such a short time with the problems in Yemen. And I think that it was a lot of, well, these kids and their parents don't care and these kids aren't engaged. And I think that really had me constantly reiterating the fact that Arabs don't come from countries that are democratic. There is no democracy in, in most of the Middle East. And so self-advocacy is not something that is built into the Arab personality or mindset or persona. I think it's something that they we need to learn. Um, it's something that needs to be intentionally learned and sought. And it's something that's scary. We don't question authority. That doesn't come naturally. Arab parents, like all other parents, they they most of the families that immigrated to America come here because they want to give their kids opportunities that they didn't have, and they want to see their children successful and thriving in this context. So I think that when we automatically assume that they don't care and they're disengaged, we're creating a barrier at schools. And we are waiting for parents to take the kind of, they, we're waiting for them to take the step to come to the school and say, I want to help my child, or how can I help my child? That's not, that's not going to happen. Schools need to be intentional about understanding those things and finding ways to bring parents in, whether it's offering things in Arabic, whether it's, you know, just really understanding the culture and making that a safe space and, and showing parents that it's okay to ask questions. It's okay to say, you know, this isn't working for my child um, and, and, and showing them that these things are acceptable in this context and that it's a very different context. And I think that has to start with understanding first where they come from and why those skills aren't present in, in their DNA or in who they are. 
another thing, and I think that's a huge one that I felt was um, something that I needed to focus on in my dissertation as well as a Palestinian American. And I think it was really hard for me to ever even mention being Palestinian until after I finished my PhD and I was doing a workshop for teachers. And for the first time, I think I stood up and I talked about that because Palestine doesn't exist on most world maps. There's an intentional erasure of Palestine. And so understanding that like Latinx communities, Arab students come from different Arab countries and Arab, different Arab countries are very, very different. Some are matriarchal, some are patriarchal, like just as a small like uh, example of how different they are. They're so different. So it, is even, it, is, it isn't even enough to recognize students like just as Arabs. I think it's really important to look at where do they come from and what does the culture of that specific country look like? How many generations of Americans have, are they first generation, second generation or third generation? Cause that also makes a very big difference about how like, you know, how, to, how those students feel, how like how their parents are, how do their parents understand what public education even is and what it looks like in America. That makes a difference, right? Um, and then we need to understand the uniqueness of those backgrounds, the complexities of what those differences entail and how they impact how our students learn, how they view the world and how they carry themselves. Um, recognizing that intentional erasure, like we have to recognize the intentional erasure of the Arab people and countries in, in their entirety. Right. Um, like I, I just keep thinking about when I was in third grade and I had to go put like a pin on my my country of origin, but my country of origin wasn't on the world map. Like, how does that feel for kids? You know, and especially when they know that there's such a negative stigma attached to their country of origin, especially here in the West for different political views, those kids are less apt than other kids um, from other Arab backgrounds to talk about their actual identity. So I think that, that it's, it's huge to recognize those, those um, kind of those things and to see even the equivalence between like, for example, the Palestinian kids and the Native Americans here and to see those connections and be able to relate those things to help us understand how those kids are feeling and how the erasure of identity when you're trying to figure out who you are at an adolescent age is so impactful and to embrace those things and to be able to allow kids to talk about themselves, but also to create cultures and, and lessons and, and critical conversations that enable those kids to really um, embrace those identities in ways that maybe even their parents at home can't because they don't know what the experiences their children are having at school. So Sam, thanks for that, um, that response. I mean, you were very uh, specific um, into specific ways that I think educators should really be thinking about um, things from, from use of names all the way through structures that are, are created in the classroom um, toward inclusivity. And I know a lot of this, and, and we've talked about this, um, you and I, about the theory behind um, the way you approach your research or the theory behind ensuring that we are developing equitable, just, and inclusive environments for students. So can you, can you talk a little bit about how you grounded your research theoretically? Um, so for me, I think um, when I looked at kind of where where we would want to be and what the ideal was after reading kind of so much on culturally responsiveness, cultural, um, cultural relevance, and then culturally sustaining pedagogy and critical race theory. In my mind, I created this image of like, kind of like a nest, like a circle within a circle within a circle. And I felt like the overarching kind of theory that encompassed all of those things and which would be like the highest level to achieve when we're thinking about um, cultural teaching is the critical race theory. Like that's what we should be aiming for to kind of take out the um, the 
actionable things from critical race theories, take the theory and turn it into something that is actionable in the classroom. I think that's probably the best way to put it. And so for me, like when I'm reading about schools or hearing schools say, how can we be culturally relevant? How can we be culturally responsive? In my mind, I'm thinking, why are we settling for the lowest levels of, of cultural teaching instead of aiming for the highest level of like what we want kids to really be able to do. Like, what's the point of being culturally responsive? Why is it enough all of a sudden to have a child be able to see themselves in, in a text or in a classroom? Yes, it's a good thing and it's obviously necessary and it's important and it's missing in a lot of American classrooms, but is it enough? Absolutely not, it's not. To me, I think that we need to be thinking about how can we disrupt systems and change systems in order for these things not to be an issue anymore, in order for us to stop talking about how we can empower these kids and start talking about what comes next, right? So, and that means that we have to empower these kids to make those changes. We have to disrupt the status quo. We need to build student toolboxes to, to be able to counter storytell, to be civically engaged, um, to kind of embrace Goldie Muhammad's four skills, criticality and knowledge, but with a solid a grounding of identity, really knowing who I am and embracing who I am and loving who I am so I can take that and fearlessly share it with the world in order to change the status quo and disrupt it. We need to really intentionally teach, uh, allow kids to gain a political consciousness that enables them to disrupt the systems and the status quo beyond just their schools, right, at a higher level. And so in order for us to be able to do those things, it's not enough to be culturally responsive. We need to provide kids with mirrors, windows, and sliding glass doors. And I forget, that's not my terms. I forget the, if you can help me, Mike. Dr. Bishop Sims. Redeem yes, Dr. Bishop Sims. Thank you. And, and that's the cultural relevant piece and the cultural responsiveness is allowing students to see themselves, but then also allowing them to understand and accept and see the value in cultures beyond even our own school cultures. So if we are teaching in schools that are primarily white, it's so important for those kids to have windows into people from other different backgrounds. Same thing if we're teaching in, in districts that are minority majority. It's important for them to be able to understand the, the, the cultures and the communities of people from all different kinds of backgrounds because our, our world is constantly changing and because there is a need for us to be able to say, I am not going to um, accept injustice to any group of people, not just my own. And so that entails understanding injustices that are being directed towards other groups of people. And then the slide in glass doors, which allows us to really say, we are going to now move out of these different situations in these different spaces and navigate them so that we can make these changes. And so that then becomes a culturally, a critical race theory perspective where we're really building kind of civic engagement and, and self-advocacy and, and, and um, giving students the tools to be able to make those changes themselves. So we're not we're get, we're, we go beyond a point where we're still teaching those skills to kids in classrooms, but the system itself, it becomes a system thing, not a teacher thing or a sole school thing. It becomes a completely different system altogether. So you really draw on some, some weighty theoretical constructs there, uh, but I think there's some also some really practical applications um, that you've, you've alluded to and I think that I think our listeners would be really interested in, and that is particularly around whether, whether it's around critical race theory or in particular around cultural sustaining pedagogy, what are some, what are some really tangible ways and culturally sustaining practices that educators should be thinking about uh, in terms of serving their Arab and Muslim students? So Beverly Tatum says, other people are the mirrors in which we see ourselves. And I think that that's probably more real than ever because kids are constantly being bombarded through social media and through technology with these kind of 
images of what the world sees them as, whether it's their, you know, their teachers, their, their parents, their peers, they're constantly being judged, I think is the only word based on what they look like and who they are. And so I think the first thing is that people need to really see their Arab kids again and, and intentionally realize that there is an invisibility there um, when it comes to really seeing those kids and to, to, to find them, to understand them, to do the work, to understand that culture as well. And that means immersing ourselves in that rich culture so that you can see a different side of it beyond what's presented in the media and what we normally see. And recognizing that oftentimes when we are putting in things like the Kite Runner, which I think is probably the most uh, popular book in English classrooms and, and high school English classrooms, how stereotypical that text is, even if it's written by another Arab. Um, there are There is very little to kind of differentiate between religion and culture in that text. And so it comes off as a religious uh, representation of Muslims and it isn't. And so being able to have those conversations in the classroom about even if we're teaching these texts to make sure that they're not being taught to reinforce and re, um, recreate stereotypes that the kids are dealing with outside of the classroom and that they're facing outside of the classroom and being able to read those texts critically to understand what they can take from it and what they should be questioning and, and talking about critically. Building the skills of kids to be, to be able to, to interrogate the world beyond a single story, whether it's the teachers interrogating their um, kind of their understandings or students being able to interrogate things that are being projected on them. Um, so using Beverly Tatum's advice, and I think it was probably the best advice, and she says to my dominant readers of this article in her um, Complexity of Identity article, she says, we are all in positions where we are sometimes dominant and sometimes subordinate. As a teacher in a classroom, obviously you're in a dominant position. So if you can't relate to the struggles of those students who society has deemed insubordinate, think of a time where you were in a position where you were uh, insubordinate. If you were the youngest person, if you were the only female in the room, um, if you were poor at some point, if you were temporarily or permanently disabled, and channel those feelings in order to empathize and understand with the, the challenges and obstacles that your students who are every day in a marginalized position, those feelings that they're feeling, and let that help you drive the critical conversation and the work that you're doing. Um, and I think that you can't do that work without partnering with your different stakeholder groups and empowering parents to be able to reciprocate that work outside of the classroom and really build that kind of leadership ability in the classrooms or in the homes and in the community as a whole. I always look at schools as community centers and I feel like a big part of our role is to really empower our parents because if we're talk talking about kind of putting a cog in the system and disrupting it completely or really stopping this domino effect where parents raise children who are carrying a lot of their same views and a lot of, you know, whether it's a stereotypical views or whether it's like this views of inferiority because we've been so socialized that we have taken them in as well, then we're not, we're not really, we're just kind of, it's like what um, Bettina Love says, like a little bit of uh, disruption of, of, of injustice is not justice, right? Minimizing injustice is not justice. And so it's, it's not changing the system. It's kind of putting a bandaid on it. And so, Part of changing that system is reaching the parents in the community and, and helping to bring them on board with that change and having them in parent advisory committees feeding into a lot of the reform that's taking place um, through focus sessions and through different things. So bringing in their, their, their kind of their voice into that change and making them a part of it. You mentioned, you know, really talking about the system as a whole then. So what, what are some things from your experiences, from your research that you would bring system-wide um, in particular uh, that would benefit um, students? 
So I think that schools, regardless of who they're catering to, need to catalyze and connect their stakeholders. Um, we function in silos, right? So teachers are in their classroom, they close their door. Oftentimes it's, a, it's, it's either, you know, it's a teacher in the classroom with those kids um, and that's it. And we don't come out of our classrooms until the end of the day. And that's, you know, there's very little communication beyond the, the logistical things that take place in the school about what's happening system-wide. So I think board, school leaders, teachers, parents, students, they have to have one shared mission and that mission has to be centered in equity and justice. They have to share the power and amplify the voices of their other stakeholders. And that means really giving up some of the decision-making factors and including other people to help make those decisions and drive the strategic change. I think the struggle for justice needs to be a universal struggle. It can't be something that one teacher in a classroom or 10 teachers out of a building of 100 plus teachers is doing in individually. It can't be something that the principal feels very strongly about, but the teachers haven't been empowered to do. It can't be something that's taking place in HR and not taking place in the classrooms either or in department buildings or administrative leadership teams. It has to be something universal. Um, we can't just kind of work on it in one area, we have to disrupt the entire system. And I'm privileged to work for a district that's interrogating their hiring practices, their discipline data, their curriculum, their post-graduation data in, in search of inequity in areas of growth. And that's what every school needs to be doing, looking for that information and then acting on it, right? You can't address one part of a larger system and address it while other inequities continue to function. Again, bringing in Bettina Loves, a reduction of injustice is not justice, right? We have to ask, whose voices are always heard and, and whose voices have intentionally been kept out of the conversation. And then we need to bring those voices in and include them in our conversations. And this is something that's historic, right? Whose voices are always heard when, we teaching, when we're teaching kids about American history and whose voices are intentionally being kept out of the conversation. Those are, that's the same question we're asking when we're talking about literature and looking at novels and, and texts that are being bought into the classroom, whose voices are represented and whose voices aren't. I think we need to like intentionally bridge the demographic divide. The, the research on the impacts of having students in, or teachers and administrators who look like our students are, there's so much research on that and the benefits are huge and the gains are huge. And so if we're really talking about student achievement and trying to maximize student achievement, these are the roots and whether we're talking about differentiation or we're talking about social emotional learning and how to really address the whole child or if we're talking about whatever we're talking about these are the things that it, social justice and equity are the core of all of those things um, so bridging the demographic divide and having more teachers that represent the demographics of students and in, in making that intentional advertising in areas where we know those um, maybe those those demographics are more likely to see it going out and intentionally looking for teachers from different demographics and seeking them out and bringing them in building capacity of teachers of color in school districts and empowering them to become leaders in those districts so that students can see people in leadership positions that look like them and they can have role models that can also support some of this work is I think those are huge things. Um, recognizing our ability and power in the classroom is another big piece. If it's not happening in schools, it's not going to happen anywhere. We have the ability to empower students. We have the ability to have critical conversations. It's uncomfortable. It's always uncomfortable. I've been doing it in my classrooms for years and it's uncomfortable every time because I'm still growing. And with every group of students and in every demographic that I've taught in, whether I've taught in primarily white schools or primarily Latinx schools or primarily Middle Eastern schools, that looks different in every context. And so it's, I'm, I'm constantly learning. And I think that that's part of being, putting myself in a vulnerable position 
to, to know and accept the fact that I'm not going to know everything and that I'm going to have conversations that are very uncomfortable for me and telling my kids, hey, guys, we're going to have these critical conversations and they're not comfortable for anyone, but that's part of doing this work. And so embracing the discomfort and embracing the, the kind of, and we always say in the beginning of our meetings, that non-closure, that this is something that's ongoing and it's necessary is another big part of it recognizing the intersections and interconnections between movements beyond my, myself. Like I, I, as a Middle Eastern Muslim Arab woman, I've, I've had to kind of learn about my Latinx students and, and their challenges. I have to learn about my black students and, and their history and their challenges and really find the threads between those movements and um, make, make those explicit to my students so that they can see the value of allyship and co-collaboration with the intent of social justice. It's so important for us to stop thinking in silos and to stop functioning in silos, whether it's as kind of minority groups or as schools or as um, kind of people in, in, in our roles, in our different roles within a school system. I, I, like, I really think that anti-Muslim racism thrived on the foundation of anti-Black racism. If we were able to kind of stop and put a, put a stop on anti-Black racism, we wouldn't be here talking today about anti-Muslim racism or anti-Arab racism or anti-Latinx racism or that of any other group, right? 400 years plus ago, we started out with anti-Black racism and it's been going on since. And so that's made it okay for us to kind of build on that with, with, different, other, with other different groups. One wouldn't be possible without the other. And so recognizing kind of those strong foundations can support and help the work to, to really work with and empower all of our students, not just the Middle Eastern and Arab student, I mean, Arab and Muslim students. Recognizing the need for the work to be continuous and take on new forms, Angela Davis says, struggles don't end, they just mature. Um, so they produce new ideas and new issues and kind of understanding that the way things have been done in the past doesn't always work. Even what you do this year might not work for next year. So it's a constant learning for the people doing the work and a constant changing depending on, the, on what's happening in our current events, what's happening in our world. I mean, whoever saw COVID-19 happening and saw it like kind of changing our world overnight and, and really highlighting inequities in our school systems and in other places, whether it's in our healthcare system or you know, just highlighting inequities across different areas. And for, for us to have to like modify and change things in a split second so quickly. Um, and really have this opportunity to kind of restructure things that we didn't see that happening. Um, so again, it's the idea of like this constant struggle and this constant change. Um, and then finally, um, I love Ibram Kendi's kind of either you're racist, you're racist or an anti-racist and embracing that there's nothing in the middle. Like you can't be neutral and that teaching is not apolitical. Like I, I you know, I, all over the, I guess, um, the social media now on Twitter and on and on Facebook and in different areas, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of like teachers wearing Black Lives Matter um, t-shirts and getting in trouble for it in their districts because they're being asked not to bring politics to the classroom. And I think that if that's what's viewed as politics, if, if student harm and recognizing students kind of backgrounds and, and recognizing where they come from and, and embracing those things and having conversations about systems that have, have historically marginalized these kids and these groups of people is considered political, then there's no way to be a teacher in a classroom in 2020 without being political. It's absolutely necessary. Um, so I think that really like deciding whether you're going to be on one end of that spectrum or another racist or an anti-racist and then taking that role and embracing it wholeheartedly as an activist scholar is a huge part of it as well. And that's a that's a big part of of what we try to foster at social justice camp is the 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 stance that 
that you are an educator who is focused on social justice in your in your education, in your teaching, um, in your in your own self development, and, and really striving um, to be an anti racist. And so, where can where can educators go to get accurate information and to really um, develop their learning uh, about how to meet the needs of Arab and Muslim students? So unfortunately, there's not much out there um, because like I said, like that democratic piece is something that we're working on building within our own community. So I do a lot of work within my community as well. Um, we started the Arab uh, American Educators Network. It's still it's in, in, in its infancy stages, but we've got some really great teachers from K through college level um, and doctors and researchers and, and psychologists and kind of people in the educational field across different areas of expertise that are working to kind of amplify the voices of different teachers and work to kind of, um, you know, to, to work for justice for Arab and American students, Arab, Muslim, Arab American and Muslim American students in the public schools as well. And so we've got a great human resource, um, human resources there that people can delve into and you can find us on Twitter at Educators Arab. Um, and so that's something that we're still developing. We hope that we can create some professional development modules and some things that we can offer schools who have um, a lot of Arab and American, Arab American and Muslim American students that they can kind of use as resources and a database of different texts that they can kind of uh, a go-to place where they can get resources. But for the time being, if schools um, need support or have specific questions or need um, resources, you can uh, kind of message us there and we are happy to to, to support any school that needs the support specifically. And, and again, like I hate to come up with like generic things. So I really think it depends on, you know, which Arab students you're dealing with and, and kind of your specific demographics. And that would be the kind of support that we could offer. So we're open to conversations and helping at Arab, um, at the Arab American Educators Network. And you can find me at SJ Educate on Twitter as well. And, and I can connect you to other educators that are doing work in specific like P to 12 or college levels provide you with different texts and research research that's the little research that's out there about Arab and American, Arab American, Muslim American kids. So there's not much out there, but we're working on it. Um, we hope that in the next few years, we can really create some more resources for schools to find and use when they need it. Well, I have to say this, this time together just in this podcast has flown by um, personally for me and in, in, in so much of what you shared. And um, I'm just so appreciative of you taking the time um, to spend with us and our listeners. But I think, you know, just before we go, just are, is there anything else you want to share just in terms of, I know clearly your passion for, for social justice education, for anti-racist education is so clear. Is there, is there any last um, final thoughts you want, to, you want to share with our listeners? Part of my dissertation was interviewing uh, and ha holding several focus sessions with the teachers um, of the kids of the Arab American students that were the focus of my case study. And I think the the largest, like the, the biggest message that came across was that they recognize the inequities of Arab American students and other students, and they are in oppressive systems that kind of won't allow them to make the necessary changes. So they have given into those systems. And I think that that complicitness and that quiet means that you accept the status quo. And so for me, I think the biggest thing for teachers across public schools, across systems, for educators, regardless of what demographic of school, you know, the demographics of your school are, regardless of what position you hold. I think that it's so important to really work to fight the oppressive system. And part of that is finding co-collaborators and allies in your building and advocating for what's best for students. I think we're charged with doing what's best for kids and focusing on curriculum and academics 
if you're the best teacher in the world when it comes to curriculum and academics, but you're not seeing your students, then you're not a good teacher. And so you really need to be able to see your students. And that means that you have to be able to vocalize and, and do what's best for them. And that means that they're have, they have to feel included enough to bring their whole selves to the classroom without having to choose what parts of themselves that they can share and what part of their identity they shouldn't share. And so I really think that it's about embracing those things, seeing beyond the surface and working to, to change the systems from the inside out in, in every way that you can. Well, again, be sure to follow Dr. Jaber at SJ Educate. And Sosa and I just, again, personally want to say thank you so much for educating all of us. This was a, a wonderful podcast and a lot to think about. And we look forward to, to reading and uh, following your work and, and seeing so that we can learn more how to better serve our Arab and Muslim students and, and all of our students because of what you're doing. So thank you. I appreciate the opportunity, Mike. Thank you.